All right, if you will, please open your Bibles. A little change of subject now. We're going to be studying God's Word. Children are dismissed to Children's Church, and I hope all of our visitors, if you have a bulletin in hand, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16, and in the bulletin there are sermon notes. Today we come to verses 23 and 24. I don't know if you really heard that. We come to verses 23 and 24. We come to the end of our study of 1 Corinthians. And it has been a long journey. And as I like to say, when we come to an end of a study, all good things must come to an end. But you haven't heard that at the end of a study because it's been five years, one week, and one day since we started studying 1 Corinthians. Now, we started it on September 11, 2000. And 16, but it hasn't been continuously every Sunday teaching out of 1 Corinthians. We've done some special studies. We've taken time off for Christmas. We've gone through and did some special lessons when we went through COVID. We did an, an end time series. So it hasn't been continuous, but we have taken a lot of time and we have taken a lot of work to go through this, this book to try to glean the incredible truths that are in these 16 chapters. I'm going to quote from myself from the very first lesson I gave on 2016 on September 11th. I said the theme of this book is correcting pride. So if you haven't been with us and you haven't studied the book of 1 Corinthians, the, the book of 1 Corinthians is dealing with correcting problems. But I summarize it there and said correcting pride because we recognized in our preliminary studies that pride was, de- was running through this book. A lot of people miss that, that this book is a book about pride. And I said, so this book has a theme of correcting pride. For this is a book where Paul is known to be correcting people at Corinth and addressing their sin issues, and he is addressing their arrogance. I truly believe as we go through this book, it will help us understand how a church is to be run, what is important to God, how to watch for pride in our lives and in the lives of others, So, especially so that we don't let pride destroy us. And I believe these goals and these issues have been addressed. We will see that pride is behind the divisions and disobedience in this book. Pride is not specifically mentioned, but being arrogant is four times explicitly. And then indirectly, pride is addressed. As you will see in almost every topic discussed, pride is truly a key topic in this book, a topic that God wants you to stay away from. God wants you to stay away from pride. This book is incredible in its subject matter. It has perhaps the best verse in all the Bible on summarizing the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, but also chapters 1 through 4 really hit the gospel in a way that no other chapters do in the Bible. Rewards in heaven, reasons for church division, dealing with maturity, lawsuits, issues around marriage, and even the principles of if you get married or not are all addressed in this book. Liberty. We spent months on the subject matter of liberty because we don't want to be a church that just continues to push and put pressure on people to just perform when we want their heart to be driving it. There are so many people that can come up with rules like do not dance, do not drink, do not do. When in actuality, Christianity gives you so much liberty. And so many churches are afraid to do that. 
But we spent so much time to make sure that you had that understanding of liberty. We went into detail with spiritual gifts. We went into detail on the doctrine of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, 15 verbal adjectives that I have begged you as a pastor to memorize so that when you wake up in the morning, then maybe you go, at, go to bed at night, that you've begun and ended your life as you remember those verses that you've memorized so that you are operating always in love. So that when you face God in judgment, you will find that love was one of the most important subject matters that judgment is all about. Because we talked about how righteousness, how righteousness is directly tied to love. People wonder all the time, what does this mean to be righteous? Is it some type of esoteric achievement? Oh, I'm righteous. What What does that look like? I'm being patient, kind, not jealous, not bragging, not arrogant, not seeking my own, not acting out of provocation, forgiving people, not rejoicing in unrighteousness, but rejoicing in truth, bearing, believing, hoping, enduring all things. That's what it's going to look like in the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, in your sins of omission. So all of that was in this study. We talked about the resurrection, and then we talked about these final matters, even dealing with matters of giving and the liberty you have in giving in 1 Corinthians 16. And so I think, yeah, we spent five years on this, but it wasn't mundane. It wasn't just one subject matter that we stuck uh, and focused on. But through it all, pride and arrogance kept coming up as to the reasons the church was divided. So let me read verses 23 and 24 as we come to the end. The Apostle Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And then we have the word, amen. That's the end. Now, these aren't filler words. These are words that end the book with a lot of power and a lot of reason. And like I like to tell you, we don't like to superficially run over anything in the Bible because this is God's word. And every aspect of God's word is important, even these endings. The book ends with grace, and it began with grace. Just quickly, just look at the first chapter, verse 3. As the Apostle Paul opens up this incredible letter, something that he just throws in, you know, he puts at the beginning, and he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he comes to this ending. So you saw it at the beginning, and you see it at the end. Why? Well, we'll talk about that. As we look at the way Paul ends this letter, it made me start thinking about the way letters and books are ended. And I did a little research on it. And most books like to end up on a happy note, even books that we read. You know, you read a book and it comes to the end, and typically it doesn't end in tragedy. And I was reading, um, I, came across, I came across this joke, all right? And this joke was dealing with Peter Pan. Because, you know, Peter Pan, as the book ends, it ends on a high note, and Peter and Wendy and everyone gets back, gets to, you know, get back to London. But as this joke was being described, it dealt with how an alternative ending would have been where, where Pan gets killed, Wendy doesn't get to go back to London. But it took a dead Pan delivery to give it, and I didn't think it would be appropriate to give you that joke. Dead pan. Dead pan. Okay. So I want you to be thinking as all my jokes are about endings. That's why purpose in giving that to you. They're endings. So 
when you come to the end of a book in the Bible, do you know that none of the books in the Bible end with goodbye? No one says goodbye. There is only one verse in the entire Bible that has goodbye in it. You turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's a letter. It's from the, New, it's from the Jerusalem Council, and I thought it was fascinating. Just, this is just a fun fact. When you come to 1 Corinthians, I mean, Acts chapter 15, you have the Jerusalem Council. The apostles are sending out a letter. So it says in verse 23, and they sent this letter by them. And I'm not going to go through the whole letter, but when it, you come to the very end, and he says in verse 29 that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood, and if you keep your se- yourself free from such things, you will do well. Then there's the wa- word farewell. It's the Greek word for goodbye. So that's the only time in the Bible the word, somebody says goodbye, goodbye, so goodbye. So as you come to this, um, go back to 1 Corinthians 15, we don't come to uh, a goodbye, we end up with some type of uh, expression that, of closure. So verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. Now in our culture, interestingly enough, as I was doing research and looking into this, that we have a whole philosophy on how to end letters. And maybe you've never thought about it, maybe you just naturally do it, but I just pulled one research paper on this, which I thought was interesting, and it just categorized that basically endings to letters fall into three categories. You have professional closings, then you have ones where you uh, have casual clo- closings, and then you have, you have more intimate endings. And so with a professional closing, it might be like, thank you, respectfully, sincerely, cordially. Those are the kind of endings that you have to more professional letters. A casual letter might have the words best, all the best thanks, best wishes, warmly. So it's casual, not as... Um, structured or maybe as like um, professional as the professional ending would be but then you've got the intimate endings where you say yours or with love love you know xoxoxo and if that's someone really close to you that's how you end the letter so those are the basic three types of categories in which we end our letters today and when you end a letter as this paper went on to discuss, you've got goals. And, and I think it's interesting because these goals are sort of like what Paul achieves. The goals, and I'm not going to go into all the detail, is number one, what do you want the reader to do next? All right? What do you want the reader to do next as you come to the end? Second, how do you want the reader to feel? And then what information does the reader need going forward? And I think all of that is given in our, our study today. So again, we're going to get this down. So these, again, are not filler words. These are words that I believe God has sovereignly put at the end of this letter to end it with power, not just filler words. So verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And if you have your notes in front of you, I think these are three affirmations. By affirmations, I think he's acknowledging his support. What the Apostle Paul it wants to do, what has been put in this letter, are three affirmations. And so if you have this end to remember, an end to remember, as we close out 1 Corinthians, 
I'm hoping that the, these three affirmations help you to remember this book. So the very first one is an affirmation of blessing. Remember, Paul wants you to be blessed. And I didn't underline the second word, blessed. You got two fill in the blanks there. The word blessed. This, it's an affirmation of blessing. And this is Paul's traditional ending. Like you might say sincerely or love to end a letter, Paul ends every New Testament letter. You should understand there are 27 New Testament books. Paul is responsible for 13 of them. When you go to Paul's letters, somewhere in the final verses, he has some aspect of the Greek word charis, which means grace, in it. And so... When you look at all the New Testament letters, not every New Testament letter ends this way, but every one that Paul does. I was going to have you turn to everyone, but what I'm going to do is I want you to listen as I'm going to read to you every one of them. I can do it in less than 40 seconds or so, so they're not, not going to be bored. But what I want you to think is we could have done a study of categorizing how Paul ends these letters because he doesn't end them all the same. Everyone deals with grace, but everyone deals with some little twist. And it's something in the back of my mind thinking of, I don't know if I ever would do a, if I did a detailed study on it, how every one of these little twists is appropriate to the theme of the book that it goes with. So we start with, these are the order they appear in the Bible, so I'm going to go this way. The book of Romans, interestingly enough, ends exactly like 1 Corinthians. So it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 1 Corinthians has the same ending. 2 Corinthians has the longest ending. In verse um, 13, 14, it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians 6, 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Ephesians, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. And I thought, shouldn't he have ended it this book like that? Did you hear that again? Let me read Ephesians. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why did I say that? Well, because remember he just said up in, um, where, did he, where is it? Um, verse 22, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, he's to be accursed. And it's kind of interesting. Paul didn't come right back with the same like, challenge or you know, same words there. So the Ephesians, I think, had a better ending for this book, but Paul didn't give it. Philippians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Colossians, grace be with you at the beginning of verse 18. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians has the exact same ending. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But then 2 Thessalonians adds the word all. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy say just grace be with you. And then Titus adds the word all. And then finally, Philemon says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Obviously, you can tell grace is the key word. Grace is the key word. And he, the Apostle Paul, is speaking as God's spokesman. Because look at who it's from. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Is this a wish? Is this a prayer? Have you ever thought about that? Why is, what is Paul saying? You know, is it like just have a good day? You know, when we send somebody off, have a good day, have a good day. Well, how's that going to happen? Is it, is it going to magically happen? Do you have power to make them have a good day? I think that the Apostle Paul 
is referencing his association as God's spokesman, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that line. The grace of the Lord, God master, Jesus specific person, the guy that I'm representing, I'm his apostle, I'm his official spokesman, not me, but the apostle Paul. I am giving that to you, you plural, the entire church. Now, interestingly, for those of you who like to get into your Greek grammar, the word be is implied. It's not a, a, a literal verb, but that's perfectly fine. It's, um, you know, you wouldn't, go, you wouldn't go into a Greek Bible and see the, the verb for be there. It's omitted, but in Greek literature, it, it was understood. So just to let you know that it is an implied be. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And so, what is Paul doing here? Gordon Fee, in his commentary, said this, As with Paul's salutation, the standard conclusion is Christianized. It is grace. It is the favor of God that is theirs through the Lord Jesus that he wishes for them. He, he wishes it. I think he speaks as a spokesman, hoping that they understand that this is the blessing that God wants to give them. Grace is the beginning and the end, Fee goes on to say, of the Christian gospel. It is the single word that most fully expresses what God has done and will do for his people in Christ Jesus. Nothing is deserved. Everything is freely given. R.H. Lenski in his commentary says, Charis, the Greek word there, is the unmerited favor of the Lord and all the gifts that flow from that favor. To the sinner, this grace extends unmerited pardon. And all of us still, still sin daily. We ask for this pardoning grace every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, but every other gift that we receive from the Lord likewise flows from this grace without any merit or worthiness on our part. The word charis is used 155 times in the New Testament. And what do you do with that? What, what fa- what it, it just tells you it's a word that's used a lot, people. That's a lot. And, and means that this is an important concept. It is at the heart of it just simply unmerited favor, it can also be used as favor, just the word favor. It's fascinating. If you would just do a study on the word grace, you would take more than five years if you were just doing all the verses that deal with the word grace. I'm going to read a few of those verses, or at least cite some of them, of how you, know, you get an understanding of this incredible word, a word that is different than mercy. And I've often challenged you, do you understand the difference between mercy and grace? If a prisoner is about to be executed and he gets a pardon, he got mercy. He deserved something bad, but then he got mercy. And in a sense, it's a blessing, it's grace. But mercy and grace, even though sometimes they overlap, they are different. And it's important that you understand those differences and those similarities. Both deal with blessings. Both deal with something good. But grace, I often say, is I'm walking down the street and I see someone, I don't know them, there's no reason, no rhyme or reason, and I drop them 20 bucks. Why? Well, that's grace. It's unmerited favor. You don't deserve it, but you get it. Mary, Luke chapter 1, she got to be the mother of Jesus by grace. Jesus grew with grace, Luke 2 tells us. So the idea is that he had favor. Now, did Jesus, was it unmerited? Think about that. Or was it just favor? God was doing good things in his life. Um, God the Father. The word became flesh and was full of grace and truth. John 1. Think about how Jesus represented his very essence was filled with grace in all that he did. As believers, we all receive grace upon grace. John 1.16 teaches us. 
Stephen the martyr was full of grace and power as he was killed. And Jesus, um, um, we learn the message of Jesus that we now give, the, we learn from the book of Acts, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Paul's life in Acts chapter 20 was dedicated to testify solemnly of the gospel of grace. Do you ever think about calling it the gospel of grace? Not just the gospel of Jesus, but Acts 20 says it's the gospel of grace. Many of us have Ephesians 2, 8, 9 memorized. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. It's the heart of our gospel, this word grace. And so it begins and it ends letters, as we saw here. So what does this do to us? What do we have here? Well, number one, if I'm looking at just this ending, I'm saying to myself, first, it reminds me that God is on my side. I know it's just so simple, and you're reading 16 chapters, and I know because you're like me, and you get to the end. And as we've been saying, especially in this 16th chapter, so many of these subject matters are so easily missed because you're at the end, and you're tired, and you've read for a long time. Don't jump over this. When you go through hardships and you go through difficulties and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's a great little line here that you remember that God's on your side. And Paul, as God's spokesman, is saying, he's on your side. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. That's the kind of religion we have. This isn't the like we learned with the Muslims, as we talked about in Sunday school, where they work and work and work and work and they try to merit things. There's a reality that God is so positive for us and such a blessing and wants to give us blessing. Don't take this as a casual ending. I think this is very powerful. It reminds us that God is on our side and how important it is for us when we think about this letter. Now remember, this is a letter. You're at Corinth. You're reading this letter. And you might have been one of the ones who were causing the division. Remember, these people don't like the Apostle Paul. It's hard for us sometimes to imagine. But remember, the church at Corinth is like divided. We talked about that at the beginning in chapter 1 where there's this division. And so many people don't like Paul. And we want Apollos. And we want this guy. And, and then we've got this attitude about lawsuits. And we've got this attitude about marriage. And you're reading this letter. And over and over and over, the Apostle Paul is correcting you. And you've got to be sitting there thinking, man, you know, who likes to be called arrogant? And yet, through this all, Paul isn't your adversary. He's one who's on God's side. And he wants you to realize God is on your side. And so maybe as we went through this letter, you felt a little bit beat up. And, it, and you start to think, you know, maybe Paul is just trying to beat me up. No, he's sending grace. He's sending blessing. He wants you to have that. And so I want you to think about that. And, and, and I tell you one thing, you know, I, I talk about this letter being to people who are arrogant, Right? And we said four times it's mentioned arrogance. And for those of you who've been with us and we've studied all the way through this, I wonder how many times you read this and you say, you know what? Well, he's talking about this person or that person. He's not talking about me. How often do you go through 1 Corinthians and say, you know, I got to watch my arrogance. I'm the one that God could perhaps be talking to and addressing to bring me to more humility. 
And remember, he's doing this because he's on your side. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So, number one, he reminds you God's on your side. But second, by bringing this up with the word grace, it reminds you to rely on God. Paul could have said, now go get him! You know, when, you know, a coach sends his team out, it's like, go get him, give him everything you got. But there's a sense where I say, hey, whatever happens, happens, que sera, sera. No, the grace of God, I'm hoping that God's blessing comes, but you say, wait a second, if, if I'm dependent upon grace to make this happen, for me to implement all these changes and to live the good life and have good things, what do I do? Well, grace, <laughs> grace, grace doesn't let me stay in control. Grace doesn't let me order things the way I want. Grace reminds me that I rely on God. For by grace I've been saved through faith. I've shared with you one of the things that happened over and over when I first became a believer is I would have night tears. And I've tried to keep reiterating and reiterating because sometimes you don't think that you're good enough. And when I would have those night tears and I would feel like, man, you're not good enough, Mike. Mike, you're not good enough to be a Christian. Mike, you're not good enough to come through and do these things for God. I would remind myself, absolutely, you're right voices in my head. I'm not good enough. God is. Jesus is. It's all grace. So again, I don't want you to rush through this letter and just come to the end and miss this blessing. Second, let's go to the next one. Here's intent. You like my slide changes? I thought it, so you all didn't think it was the same colors or the same point. I changed the color subtly. You all catch that? Second point. All right, here we go. Now we go to verse 24, and he says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. My love. When you come to this line here, do you know this is the only time Paul ends a letter with this? I would think, man, you're ending everything with grace. You should end so many of the letters with love. But he didn't. But I think, again, as Paul has come down hard on these people, I think this expression where he's giving his intent. Why is he sending this? That he just wants to remind them that love is driving him. My love be with you all. My love, personalized. Paul, this, before he stood, I think, as God's representative, but now he's coming and he's personalizing it. Again, he's hit them so hard on arrogance and so hard on all these issues where, you know, you think you guys know how to handle problems with one another, and you're going to court with one another. You think you know how to handle marriage, and you guys have totally messed up marriage. You, 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 you're fighting over spiritual gifts, and you have better follow what I said. And remember, you know, again, it's got to be hard for Paul to send his love. Remember, these people just don't like him. And, and in case you are unaware... The Apostle Paul, as we went through earlier, the travel plans, things get so messed up, so much of what he tries to do gets rejected, that he writes the second letter we call 2 Corinthians to a church that the whole theme is the defense of his apostleship. Now, I remember I'm studying this in seminary, and I'm trying, oh, this is really cool. You go through, what, 13 chapters, defense of your apostleship. Now think about that. Think about what it took for him to dedicate 
13 chapters to that theme. It's like for me taking 13 weeks and saying, listen, will you guys listen to me? I'm your pastor. Please, this is why you should listen to me. I've been to seminary. I've been serving here. I've done all this. And, and, and begging people to try to listen to me. You understand, at one point, he's got to be exasperated. He's got to be saying, you know, you read through that last line, and if you don't catch the context that Paul has to come back and write an entire letter to people to say, listen, you had better understand I am the valid authority. I'm an apostle. And he's not doing it out of arrogance. He's doing it out of servant, servanthood. And, and, and he wants these people to understand, take my correction because I love you. Now, this is different than when, you know, you have a child and you might say, look, I'm going to discipline you and it's going to hurt me more than hurt you. That's not this. What this is, as you say to your child, I'm doing this because I love you. And you want to drive that into, I love you. And, and so that is what you, you don't want to miss here. This is my love be with all you. But it's in Christ Jesus. It's in this realm, this realm of Christian doctrine. Because people, there is a reality. These corrections are not for those outside. For those outside, it all, what he wants them to first do is come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, for somebody that isn't a believer in Jesus Christ, what Paul writes about is absolutely foreign to them. So if you have never come to faith in Christ, I can imagine that 1 Corinthians is like, woo, woo, right over your head. I mean, I've been to even so many, I'm <laughs> like, <clears throat> so many weddings. And today, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to a wedding. <laughs> it's all day. It's going to be 3 o'clock wedding, 6 o'clock reception. It's a long day for me. But my point in bringing weddings up is I've been to so many secular weddings where 1 Corinthians 13 is, is recited. And they don't, you know, they absolutely don't live by that. They don't have any concept after they get married that, you know, how patience and kindness works in the marriage relationship. And maybe that's where some of you are. And the reality there's so much frustration in your life is because you've never come to faith in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus, as we learned in 1 Corinthians 15, has five subject matters, five topics. Man's sin, the person of Christ, death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, faith alone. You have to understand all of those, how they relate to you, that you're a sinner, that apart from, uh, that, apart from uh, God's grace, you're under judgment. The only answer is the person of Christ. You've got to believe he's God. You've got to believe he's man. So many religions believe in some aspect of Jesus, but they don't fully embrace that he's God and man. You have to if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's a non-negotiable. You have to believe that his death paid the penalty for sin. You have to believe that it was a, 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 a substitutionary atonement. He paid the penalty for sin. Fourth, he rose again. He's alive. He is not dead. He is alive. He's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. The blessing that you can be there in heaven, too, is yours only if you turn from your sin and believe by faith alone. That is the gospel message. It's a message of love. And so it is in that realm for the people who have received this and they become believers in Jesus Christ and they become born again. 
that Paul says, my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Everything that I'm trying to get you to do and try to get you to understand is out of a motivation of love. Professor Mark Taylor in his commentary said, he, Paul, has been quite sharp and confrontational with them at various points in this letter. But along the way, he's reminded they are his beloved. Do you know chapter 4, chapter 10, chapter 15, he continually reminds them, I love you, I love you, I love you. And when he wants them to know one final time that he loves them all, not just the select few, Paul has warned them precisely because he loves them. And they will receive the letter as children from a loving father. They will know that Paul loves them and the Lord, for he has shown by his own example how to live as God's holy people. See, it's easy for us to forget. Do you remember Paul, almost in begging them, said, I have become your spiritual father? But they weren't listening to him. Lenski adds, now Paul does not merely write about love, he exercises it to the full. Hence the final assurance. The apostle's great heart swells once more. Whatever other emotions he has shown in writing this letter, love is the deepest, richest of them all, and it all embrace, and it embraces all the Corinthians, those who distress the heart as well as those who delight his heart. Back of every one of his admonitions of them stands his heart of love. The last word is and must be Christ Jesus. He and he alone is the sphere in which Paul's love lives, moves, and has its being into that sphere of love. Paul, like a magnet, draws all those who come into contact with him. Gordon Fee says, given that reality, the concluding expression of Paul's own love for them is all the more striking. Most likely it is added to soften the blow of what at times, including this letter, even thinking about what verse 22 has said. How many of you who were last week thought about verse 22? Verse 22 is one of those harshest expressions. Think about it. Look at verse 22. If anyone doesn't love the Lord, he's to be accursed. A sense of going to hell. Eternal judgment. That's harsh. And again, he didn't say, hey, anyone doesn't have faith in Christ. He put it to that higher level. If you don't love Jesus, you're accursed. So he says, these are strong words. To write as he does does not mean he doesn't love them less, but more. And so he is with them. He assured them of what they heartily deserved with grace, and then now he gives them love. And so as we look at this book, as we go forward as a church, I want us to think through the fact this letter, this book was given as out of a motivation of love. That's, in, that's his intent, to love. If you haven't been with us, I can tell you and encourage you, the podcast are on um, our internet site. Go back and listen to them. I would hope that some of you regular attenders would go back and listen to them, that you would study this book. And this isn't the end. This is the end of our study on Sunday mornings. But for you to always be able to go back, because there's so many important subject matters in this book that you'll go back and you'll study them and you'll get further and deeper into them, knowing that everything that you have here comes out of love. Lastly, this is kind of a surprise, and you come to the last word, amen. Amen means I affirm. And so I put it up there twice. Authority of authority, affirmation of authority. Remember to affirm God's ways. Amen, amen is one of the few words that we believe it started in the Hebrew language. It went through many other different languages, and then it got used in the Greek language. And so it ends the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. 
Hebrews, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude also have this ending. Amen. When Jesus gives those lines, and I, how many of us love those verses when it says, truly, truly, I say to you? The words truly, truly are amen, amen, amen. It's an affirmation. This is an important word. It's not just a word to end things. If you were going to do a study of God's attributes, there are so many ways you can look at God. And as we have said before, remember there are two categories of God's, God's attributes. Um, attributes that God has that, you know, that only he has. Those are called incommunicable attributes, the meaning like he's omnipotent, omnipresent. We're never going to have those. But there are what's called communicable attributes, attributes that God has like love and, and feeling, maybe even um, aspects of, of, uh, of uh, well, I'm not thinking off the top of my head, but God, whatever, some, these emotions, the ability to think that we have those characteristics and just like God does. Have you ever thought of the fact that God is the God of amen? There's one verse I thought it would be kind of interesting. It's one time in the entire Bible, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, I want you to all turn there and see this very, very, very important one expression. When you look at the word amen, you know, it, it conveys our very, who our God is. And where is it? Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, as God is bringing declaration of the new heavens and the new earth, he gives this insight about who he is. And I think it helps us understand this concept of, of, of affirmation. Isaiah 65, verse 16, it says, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. Now, there's many Hebrew words for truth, but in the New American Standard Bible, they took the word amen. And I don't know if some of your versions have it, but it is the word amen. It's a different word. There's different words for truth, but the word amen, and it's the only time it's used with God here, it is, will be blessed by the God of amen. And he who swears on the earth will swear by the God of amen. And so it's used twice in that verse. Because the former troubles are forgotten, because they are hidden from my sight. And so amen is like this affirmation. It will be done, because we have a God of amen. Now maybe you can say, well, you know, we'll try to get things done, but one of the attributes of God, and I'll let you categorize it, is that he gets things done. And when you doubt and you wonder, am I, are things going to happen? Is God really ever going to come through? Are we ever going to see the new kingdom, the new heavens and new earth? It's the God of amen. Now, go back to 1 Corinthians. You say, well, why is this word used here? Why is this use, word used here? It's used 30 times in the Hebrew um, Bible, 12 times in the book of Deuteronomy. It's used um, oh, how, let me see how many times I've got it. Oh, it, be, it gets used a lot. <laughs> I don't have my reference here. Um, how many times it gets used in the New Testament? Um, it, is a, it is something that we know that the church ends up closing prayers by using affirmations, like when you preach and all of a sudden somebody yells, amen, amen. Um, what I'm going to tell you, you may not get at every church. This word amen here, and I want you to understand so it doesn't confuse you, 
Paul didn't write it. We know that in the first century from the New Testament, when we find early manuscripts, that the first few hundred, hundred years, the word amen didn't appear. It's called textual criticism, where you study, and I don't ever want you to be discouraged because I think a lot of people sometimes, when they'll hear about challenges with words in the Bible, they freak out as if it's undermining the Bible, as if the Bible can't be trusted. One of the greatest things that when you study the Bible and you go into this concept of textual criticism is you're overwhelmed that 99.9% of the words that are in the, you know, the, the original manuscripts, we can trace back and have great confidence that they were there when the Apostle Paul or whoever the New Testament writer was, or let alone the Old Testament writers. But I wanted to point this one out here, and I wanted to make a special point of this is because I truly believe that this got incorporated and became a part of God's word. It's sort of like when the book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying. Was oh, it Deuteronomy where Moses dies and they and, the, and it records that he dies? And you know, um, he, he, if it's not Deuteronomy, who is it? Help me. Is it Deuteronomy? Okay, you don't remember. You don't know. Okay, and, and where it talks about Moses' death, and you say, well, Moses didn't write that. Well, somebody added that in there. Well, I believe on this, the New Testament church kept writing amen, 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 and they kept affirming that this is something they agreed heartily to. And that's where I wanted to leave it with you. I want you to be leaving today saying, you know what? I agree that this is God's word, and I affirm it, and, and I want this to be something that I hold to as truth in my life. I'm going to read the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to go through it, and I'm going to let it change my life, and, and, and I'm going to work to adapt in it. So, you know, some of, the, some of the endings are, you know, when you look at it, you, we know be sure the Apostle Paul wrote the word amen, but we don't think that Paul wrote this amen. And so um, don't want that to undermine it. I still think it's God's word. I think that God used it to have the affirmation of the church be recorded for history, that the church kept saying, amen, amen, amen. All right, so this is goodbye. The sincerely yours, love Paul. Our five years of study has gone by quickly. I hope it's not bored you because we've had such a variety of topics. Because this was such a long study, I got to tell you one of the things that we're going to do next is we're going to do like a five-month jet tour study of the book of Revelation. And looking forward to that. We're going to take one or two chapters. I'm going to give you every week. I'm just going to give you the outline, and then I'm going to focus on one verse as we go forward every week so that we can have a pretty good feel for the book of Revelation. But uh, I hope you like this ending. Um, I got to laugh because in our life, in our family, sometimes I don't end phone calls well. I don't know if you guys, Becky is laughing I don't think even a joke. Why is she laughing? Because I would, we'd have a conversation, and she'd say bye, and I'd just hang up. And I wouldn't say goodbye. And so I've had to learn in life, sometimes you have to say goodbye. My kids realize that. And then in ending letters, if Becky would send me a letter and didn't put a verse at it when we were dating, it was always a problem. But we've learned to adjust. Um, do you like Paul's ending here? 
It's not sincerely, but it was to remind you of grace, love, and the affirmation. And now, as you go forward, are you going to go forward in the grace of Jesus Christ because you have faith in him, and you're going to believe that this letter was written out of the motivation of love to correct you? Because all of us have the tendency to, to, to sway. And will you start to read this book saying, Perhaps I'm the arrogant one that needs to be adjusted. I know I have to do that. And will I affirm it and say, I will put it into practice. That's my hope and my goal for each and every one of you. And my hope and goal and desire is that we all do it in Jesus Christ, that we're all believers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your words aren't just filler words, that everything has rhyme and reason and purpose. And I pray that... God, as we close this letter, words that could easily be quickly read over and not really pondered will make all of us have now an end to remember. And it'll be because we're thinking about grace, we're thinking about the correction, the love that was behind it, and we'll affirm it. In Christ's name, amen.